Jesus withdrew with his disciple to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, and the region across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bonegris, which means the son of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I spent a lot of time in basketball gyms. My dad was a high school coach for 30 years, and so I was privy uh, to his musings uh, at, at various games. I would sit, sit in in the locker room at halftime or post-game. Uh, when we would watch a game on TV, he, he was the guy that actually cared about the post-game interview with the coach. Uh, when the reporter was holding the microphone up to the coach, uh, my dad would say, be quiet, everyone. He would turn the volume up. He would want to hear what was going on in inside that guy's mind. And one of the things you, you know if you've played team sports is that it's almost always the players who make the difference in the game. If a team doesn't show up to play, you're probably going to lose. And yet, every once in a while, a team does win despite its players. Every once in a while, a team will win despite their best efforts <laughs> because the coach has made all the difference in the game. Well, this morning we encounter a story in which it is emphatically not the players who made the difference. Jonathan just read our scripture reading, our sermon passage from Mark chapter 3. As we saw last week, Jesus has just entered the, the local synagogue and healed a man on the Sabbath day. This enrages the Pharisees, but the crowds, they can't get enough of him. That's the focus there of verses 7 to 12. I'm going to read verses 7 to 12 one more time. We're actually not going to linger here because what I hope that you'll see is that it's a transition paragraph. It's a summary of things that we've already seen in the Gospel of Mark as he shifts his focus from one scene to the next. So look there again at Mark 3, starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large, large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard 
about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So as a result of, of Jesus' healing ministry, his, his popularity is skyrocketing. Skyrocketing. The crowds are continuing to press in on him. Demons are continuing to identify him as we saw in chapter 1. And just as the demons were shushed by Jesus in chapter 1, remember that? Uh, verse 25 and then again in verse 34 of chapter 1. So he continues here to say to the demonic realm, don't tell others about me. My time has not yet come. Crowds are flocking to see him. Demons are slithering in to identify him. The religious leaders are plotting to kill him. What's he going to do? Well, what's Jesus' game plan? What's his action plan for carrying out the mission his father has given him? Well, that's where Mark takes us now in verses 13 to 19. Four important lessons are brought to the surface in these verses. First, a sovereign call. Second, a mighty task. Third, a surprising team. And fourth, a crucial step. A sovereign call, a mighty task, a surprising team, and a crucial step. Let's think about these together. First, a sovereign call. Look again there at verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. That sentence is true of every one of you if you're a Christian. How does a lost, alienated, dead-hearted sinner find herself in the family of Jesus? Answer, he wanted her. He desired her, and so he called her, and so she came to him. I don't know what image of Jesus you've had in your head this morning as we've been singing songs and hearing the word read, but the Jesus we're encountering this morning, the Jesus of John 3.13, is not like an insecure salesman working off commission, just scrambling for any warm-blooded volunteer for his cause that he can possibly find. No, this Jesus is calm and utterly in charge. Often in the Gospels, Jesus does scatter the seed broadly. He, he calls everyone, as it were. But, but here, something else is going on. He is not in Mark 3, mass emailing humanity with the subject line reading, to whom it may concern. Just hoping some random anonymous people respond. No, Jesus has an invite list. His sovereignty is specific. 
and personalized. And so, therefore, are His summons. He called, they came. He calls, you come. And if you have come, it's because He called. Friend, don't make the mistake of assuming that because the call of Jesus Christ is sovereign and effective, that you don't have any responsibility to come. You do. His electing grace doesn't make your coming unnecessary. It makes it possible. It is entirely right, and it does not undermine the sovereignty of God to use a phrase like, I came to Christ. If you're a Christian, you did. You came to Christ. That's a thoroughly biblical way to put it. But the question is, why? Why did you come to Christ? Well, that answer is a bit more complex. What was the decisive factor in the final analysis for why you came? And the answer is that you came because the king spoke your name. He didn't make you come against your will. Some people have this idea that God's sovereignty in salvation means that he's dragging people, kicking and screaming against their wills. No, God doesn't make you come against your will. He makes you willing to come. And friend, if you have never come to Jesus in humble trust for forgiveness of your sin and for new life and ultimately for eternal life, then you need to do so right now. You need to do so this morning. The Bible declares that today is the day of salvation. Not to mention that tomorrow is not even promised to you. If, if you're a kid among us, you need to come to Christ no one is too young. No one that can understand this offer is too young for this offer. If you want to know more about what it means to come to an invisible person, what that even looks like, talk to your parents about that. Talk to someone in this church about what it would look like to come to Christ. You can do so today. And you can even leave this building a changed person because you've entered a relationship with the King and the Savior who loves you and calls you. And if you're perhaps not a child, but you're visiting and you've never yet come to Christ, maybe you've come into a church building, but you've never come to Christ in faith, then, oh, I just exhort you as well. Today is the day of salvation. The Bible is very clear about the fact that we were all made to know and love and enjoy God, but we have utterly blown it because we have decided to call the shots ourselves, to go our own way. We've turned our back on Him, and we have sought to live for other things, especially the person staring back at us in the mirror. 
God would be utterly right, utterly just, utterly good to leave us in this state of ruin, this state of separation from Him because of our rebellion. But the Bible rings with the news that He loved us so much that He sent His only Son, Jesus, to live a perfect life of obedience to the Father, to die on the cross in the place of sinners, and to rise again three days later so that anyone who turns away from their rebellion and trusts in Christ will one day rise right along with Him, with a new body fit for a brand new earth. You can become a Christian today. You can leave here changed forever today. Now is the day of salvation, a sovereign call. Number two, a mighty task. Look there at starting in verse 14. He appointed, Jesus appointed 12, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. The thing to notice, and this is probably the the main idea of the passage, is that Jesus never sends us out without first calling us in. So you, you don't have verse 14 without verse 15. I'm sorry, verse 14 without verse 13. And the reverse is also true. Jesus never calls us in without also sending us out. So you don't have verse 13 without verse 14. Here, Jesus selects out of a larger group of followers, 12 apostles. But notice what he deploys them to do. He deploys them to extend his own ministry. He's not calling them to do anything that he himself is not already doing. He has been preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He has been casting out demons. So here he's essentially just saying, now you go and do likewise. Preach the gospel of the kingdom and drive out demonic darkness in the process. Now, you and I are not apostles. We, we, we weren't summoned to Jesus on this ancient mountain, and we weren't sent out by him as his eyewitnesses. So we can't read ourselves back into this story in every single particular. And yet we have been entrusted with a mission that involves proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and pushing back demonic darkness in the process. Satan is real. Demons are real. Our battle, Scripture tells us, is not against flesh and blood, but against the demonic forces in the spiritual realm. Which means that tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and throughout this week, as you go out in your neighborhood and to your workplace and to the park, wherever you find yourself, do not, do not underestimate the demonic opposition you will encounter. It won't always feel like demonic opposition. It might simply feel like not wanting to put yourself in an awkward interaction. Not wanting to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation where you might try to bring up a spiritual topic and it might get shot down. But on the cross, Christian, Jesus defeated Satan that doesn't mean he, Satan is destroyed. He's not yet destroyed. But he has been 
defeated. It's, it's almost like he's been defanged. And in the meantime, he therefore is like a wounded animal. How do wounded animals act? Wounded animals are angry animals. They are fierce animals because they know their time is short. Satan is hobbling along because he's been dealt a death blow. In his, he hears the clock ticking, and so he is angry and his, he's fierce, but his doom is sure. Brothers and sisters, as an, as an embassy of the high king of heaven here at River City Baptist Church, we have been given a mission. Yes, we've been called to get the gospel right. And we ensure, the elders ensure, that everyone who joins the church can get the gospel right. But you know that's not all we've been expected to do. We are also called to get the gospel out. To get the gospel out. Many of you will be traveling at some point this summer, reconnecting with family and friends. What an opportunity, again, that God is giving you to step out in faith, to open your mouth in love, to ask intentional questions about where someone is spiritually. Maybe it's a, a friend from high school or college, or a friend from growing up, a family member that you've just been, you've been kicking the can down the road, delaying, delaying, delaying that conversation that the Lord has placed on your heart. Don't let another summer go by without intentionally striking up a gospel conversation with someone who needs to hear it. J.D. Greer is spot on when he says, without the mission, a church is not a church. It's just a bunch of disobedient Christians hanging out. What I love about this scene on the mountain, what encourages me is that it's so obvious that what fuels the mission is not individual giftedness or flashy programs. What fuels the mission is granted authority from the king. This should flood our hearts with confidence. But why? Well, on one level, just, just think about daily life. We know this intuitively. We are happy to go along with the plan when we trust the person calling the shots, when we trust the person in charge. If you were a, uh, you know, sh shooting hoops in a gym, my second basketball analogy of the morning, we'll see if it's my last. Uh, but, but if you were in a, in a gym shooting baskets and all of a sudden the person that walked in was Steph Curry. For those of you who don't know who that is, he's an NBA player for the Golden State Warriors. He's in the Western Conference Finals right now. Probably the purest shooter in the history of the game of basketball. If Steph Curry walked into that gym and started ordering you uh, or giving you tips, instructions on how to improve your shot, do you know what you would do? you would obey him. You would defer. You would trust him and obey him because if anyone knows what he's talking about, it's Steph Curry. It's a silly illustration, but it illustrates a serious point. The uncreated, beginningless God who flung galaxies into being with a word is the one walking into the gym. The one looking at you and saying, Here's what you need to do. And he says, go proclaim my name. Oh, and by the way, here's the power to do so. 
actually, go proclaim my name. Here's the power to do so. And if, if it's all right, I'm actually going to come with you. I, I'm going to be there with you every step of the way to the very end of the age. Before we turn to the next point, let, let's just note and marvel at the direct link between this ancient scene on a Palestinian mountainside and your conversion. Here's how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. Quote, as we read Mark's words, we should have a sense of thrill. I love that. We should have a sense of thrill in recognizing that here Jesus was beginning an evangelistic campaign which would lead ultimately to ourselves. Believer, someone in your life, life loved you enough to summon up the courage and tell you about Jesus. Who in your life is going to be able to point to you and say, back in 2022, he loved me enough. She loved me enough to tell me about the most important news I could ever hear. A sovereign call, a mighty task. Number three, a surprising team. The list of apostles in verses 16 to 19 is not exactly exhilarating. Uh, it kind of reads like a, like a phone book. Uh, some of you young folks may need to uh, also ask your parents about that. Mainly ask them how to come to Christ. But you also ask them, what is a phone book? Or if you Google it, here's the problem. If you Google the word phone book, you're probably going to get something unhelpful. It's just going to say something like a telephonic directory. So you're going to need to click over to images, and then you'll know what I'm talking about. But this, verses 16 to 19, reads like a kind of phone book. It's not a paragraph that a preacher looks at and thinks, ah, that's going to preach. But I do think there's, there's actually more here than meets the eye. A few things. First of all, the number of apostles is significant. The number is significant. Given that earlier in chapter 3, Jesus was rejected in the synagogue by Jewish leaders, it's no coincidence that here he's choosing a new 12. The nucleus of God's people will no longer be 12 tribes, but 12 apostles. Here on this mountain stands, gathered together, the new Israel in embryo. Jesus is reconstituting the people of God around himself. We'll think more about that in a couple weeks. Okay, so the list is theologically significant, great, but is that it? No, there, there are immensely practical lessons here in this phone book of a list. Application one. Notice the kinds of guys Jesus is able to bring together. We, we often focus, when we think about the disciples, on the kind of blue-collar, ragtag nature of the group. But what I don't think we often recognize are the deep differences that existed among them, some of which ran along very similar lines to what we see today. I mean, just look at the list. You've got Peter, who eventually denies Jesus, Thomas, who doubts him, James and John, who offend him. He calls them the sons of thunder. 
that was not a compliment. That had to do with their temperament. Oh, yeah, and on the same team here, you have Matthew the tax collector, who we thought about a couple weeks ago, and Simon the zealot. Now, it's hard for us to feel the scandal of this today, but here's the historical reality. The zealots were a fierce, a fierce sect of, of Jewish nationalists. They were insurrectionists who were bent on overthrowing Roman oppression at all costs. That's Simon. Tax collectors, if you recall, were not Jewish nationalists. They were Jewish traitors who had cozied up to Rome and were benefiting from that very Roman oppression at the expense of their own brothers and sisters. So you got Simon and you got Matthew. One works against the government. The other, until very recently, was working for the government. One has been a, a violent patriot. The other has been a sellout, a snitch. And Jesus walks into that complicated human dynamic and says, you guys look like you should be on the same team. He deliberately brings them together. I think we're so used to things like this that we don't stop and just consider the alternative. Like, wouldn't it have been a lot easier to not bring them together? I mean, Jesus could have, and I don't mean choosing one over the other. I just mean Jesus could have if, I, you know, if I'm thinking about, okay, building a movement that's going to change the world, and I'm Jesus, I'm probably going to set up zealots for Jesus and tax collectors for Jesus. And they can do their own things. But that's not what he does. He takes sworn political enemies. As if he were to today take someone from the extreme end of the political left and the extreme end of the political right and say, both of you, need to repent and follow me together. Jesus doesn't opt for what's easy. He opts for what's miraculous. In his book, Bloodlines, John Piper observes, quote, a, a leader's wisdom and strength is magnified in proportion to the diversity of people he can inspire to follow him with joy. Now, it's Piper, so it's a little bit of a mouthful. I'm going to say that first line again. A leader's wisdom and strength is magnified in proportion to the diversity of people he can inspire to follow him with joy. Piper goes on to explain. If you can lead only a uniform group of people, if you can lead only a, uni a uniform group of people, your leadership qualities are not as great as they would be if you could win a following from very diverse people. Friends, the startling differences among these apostles reflect the singular greatness of their leader. May we at RCBC increasingly become a home and a haven, not just for people who remind us of ourselves, not just for clones, but for people who actually have little in common except for the Jesus who unites them. Another lesson to draw from this list, application number two, is that God doesn't call everyone to be a Peter or a James or a John or Matthew. 
You know, some of us are called to be the other James. Some of us are called to be Thaddeus. They didn't walk on water. They didn't write one of the Gospels. They just quietly followed their Lord. One of my favorite little gems in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 8.18, where Paul says, just in passing, we are sending the brother famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. This was the original celebrity preacher. Uh, This guy was so well known that Paul didn't even bother to mention his name. He was just like, yeah, we're, we're sending you that famous guy, that famous gospel preacher. And for all we know, the brother was famous and faithful. It's possible to be both. But here's the thing. 2,000 years later, we don't even know who he was. Big name then. No name now. And meanwhile, there are names on this ancient list of apostles that endure today simply because they were faithful. And the last lesson from this list is a sobering one. Judas Iscariot walked with Christ not for three days or three weeks or three months, but for all three years of Christ's earthly ministry. And Judas heard every one of Christ's sermons. And yet he was lost. Jesus is not looking for people today to be merely affiliated with him. He has plenty of people who are willing to be affiliated with him. He's looking for true followers who will give him their hearts and their lives. And we should note also that Jesus is quite capable of using unregenerate sinners for his own purposes. Unregenerate sinners to advance his work. Don't be impressed when you see someone who's been used mightily in the kingdom fall. The Lord has been using such people from the very beginning. And be warned. Be warned. Don't take confidence in your proximity to Christ. Don't take confidence in what you do for Christ without reflecting on your heart's demeanor toward him. Just this week, I saw someone make this very uh, incisive observation that Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss so that we would know that someone's public affection for Jesus might not be telling the whole story. A sovereign call, a mighty task, a surprising team, And fourth and finally, a crucial step. Now, if I were to close in prayer now, you may leave thinking, well, that was pretty simple, straightforward passage. Jesus calls us in to send us out. He doesn't call us in without sending us out. He doesn't send us out without first calling us in. And you're right, all that's true. I want you to glean that from this passage. But you would actually be leaving having missed the secret of it all. Look again at verse 14. He appointed 12 that he might send them out to preach. 
No. It doesn't say that. What does it say? He appointed 12 so that they might be with him. The lesson here is that we must not only come to Jesus, but also be with Jesus before we're ready to be sent out by Jesus. He he doesn't just rally us for a pregame pep talk. He doesn't just download some information into our brains, zap us with some sound doctrine, and say, get on with it. No, verse 13, he called to him those he wanted. In verse 14, he appointed them that they might be with him. Is this not beautiful? He doesn't just want followers in his vicinity. He wants the followers themselves. Brothers and sisters, the devil wants you to believe that God regrets calling you. Like he, he, he regrets getting involved with you. Or maybe your theology is good enough where you would say, well, he's not going to regret it. He's omniscient and all the rest, but he's definitely just tolerating me. But the scriptures crash in and they silence that lie. They declare not that Jesus wants to get rid of you or has to just endure you, but that he longs to be with you. Now, in many Christian circles, this is the accent. This is the emphasis on a personal, vibrant, intimate relationship with Christ. One of the things I love about this church and the theological tradition in which we stand is that our songs and our prayers and our sermons, if I'm doing this correctly, are relentlessly God-centered, not man-centered. So I'm not afraid that you're going to leave this morning thinking that you are the hero of the Bible and the center of God's universe. I would be afraid of that in some churches. I'm not afraid of that this morning. Here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid you're going to leave without sensing the depth of God's particular and personal and passionate love for you. He wants to be with you. And not just glorified you. He wants to be with you today. In this passage, we're meant not to identify first and foremost with Jesus and the disciples. It's always dangerous when you're reading the Bible and the first person you identify with in the story is Jesus. And yet, by way of analogy, I think there is a lesson for us here in Jesus' strategy of investing in a few. You know, Jesus loved the masses, but he didn't invest in the masses. He invested in a few. He invested in 12, even more intentionally in three, Peter, James, and John. In other words, the Son of God did not try to be all things to all people, and neither do you. It's good to go broad in the context of a, of a church, and it's an exciting time as a new church because there's constantly new people to get to know, and that's good, but don't sacrifice broad for deep. Don't choose broad at the expense of deep. A few years ago, I had the chance to visit Israel. I know some of our families here will be going this summer, and 
There are some famous bodies of water there that you get to see that you read about in the Bible. There's the Sea of Galilee, which we've been thinking about in recent weeks because Jesus' ministry in Capernaum has been right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee is in the north, and the Dead Sea is in the south. And these two bodies of water are connected by the Jordan River. And they have a lot in common, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. One of the main things they have in common is that both have a lot of fresh water flowing into them. Sea of Galilee's got got tributaries flowing in, Dead Sea's got tributaries flowing in, and from the Jordan River flowing into the Dead Sea. But there's one major difference. There's There's a reason why life teems in the Sea of Galilee, but the Dead Sea is called what it is for a reason. Everything stagnates and shrivels and dies. It's not because the Dead Sea doesn't have fresh water flowing into it. It's because it doesn't have an outlet. Sea of Galilee has the fresh water coming in and the fresh water flowing out. But when that fresh water flows into the Dead Sea, it stays there and nothing can live. It's possible to be a Dead Sea Christian. I mean, so many of you have an embarrassment of riches at your fingertips when it comes to resources, podcasts, sermons, Spotify playlists, conferences, good teaching and, um, from the podcast. I'm not saying I'm a good teacher. But, uh, you know, you have a lot of fresh water flowing into your life. But if there's not also an outlet, if there's not output in others, then your soul is going to start shriveling up. I want to challenge every one of you this morning not to pick 12 apostles, that's how cults get started, (laughs) but to pick one person, one person in this church to invest in. It doesn't have to be formal. You don't have to feel qualified. If you've been with Jesus, to use the language of this passage, if you've been with Jesus, then you have something to offer others. Now, I'm not saying that after the benediction, you should, you should waltz up to someone and say, greetings in the name of the Lord. I would like to mentor you. <laughs> that may not be the most helpful approach. But what I am saying is that you should pray about someone that you can shoot a text or an email to and just say, hey, could we just meet up together to read through the Bible, to pray, to share our faith? to just encourage one another in the Lord? Pray about it. And then I challenge you, brothers and sisters, make it happen. Well, in conclusion, this is a passage that hums with excitement, doesn't it? Jesus is choosing the the nucleus of a new Israel. He's calling and communing and sending and giving authority to work out, to, to work wonders. But for all the momentum that we kind of feel crackling in the air, for all the energy in the air, Mark wants us to know that dark clouds are forming on the horizon. So he ends with a little three-word preview of the fact that the Lord on the mountain is going to get betrayed. Listen to how one commentator strikingly put it. 
quote, Mark wants his readers to know that the death of Jesus was not an unplanned misfortune. On the contrary, in his sovereign choice of the twelve, Jesus knowingly chose one who would betray him. His selection of Judas Iscariot was not a blunder. It was rather a deliberate choice to help him fulfill his task. Jesus chose Judas so that he wouldn't be able to evade his mission of saving you. It was a way of saying, even at the beginning of his ministry, yet not what I will, Father, but what you will. May your will be done. In the next scene, Jesus comes down from this mountain, but less than three years later, he's going to ascend another mountain called Calvary. He'll ascend it not with disciples that time. He's going to ascend it with thieves and with a wooden cross on his back. And on that cross, he will die for the ungodly. And three days later, he will rise to life. And 40 days after that, he'll ascend yet another mountain. And there he'll say to the disciples he loves, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. Sometimes a coach can make all the difference in a game. And when your coach also happens to be the king of the universe and the Lord of life, then you can have joy and confidence in the task he gives you. Come to him. Go for him. But don't forget to be with him and to enjoy him just as he enjoys and delights in you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that you are not just a cosmic drill sergeant who enlists us for a task and deploys us to do it, but that you actually call us to be with you, to experience a vibrant, intimate relationship with you. And out of that relational richness, you send us out to bear witness for your name, and you come along. We thank you that you are with us always to the end of this coming week and to the end of the age. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.